Hello everyone. So, after a long delay, I would like to present the next installment in the history of the United States in 100 objects. This is number 18, Jesuit Brass Medallion with image of Ignatius Loyola. So what is this object? It is made of brass, most likely was produced in France in the early to mid 1700s. In form, it is a flat oval medallion about one inch long with a loop on the upper end. It is significantly corroded with the lower edge missing and with the designs worn down but still discernible. So there are patterns on both sides of the medallion. One shows an image of St. Ignatius Loyola surrounded by fragments of a Latin slogan, which probably translates as St. Ignatius, founder of the Society of Jesus. And on the other side is an image of St. Mary with a halo around her head and the inscription, largely illegible, but based on the small fragments that are still discernible, probably reads in Latin, Regina sine labe originali concepta, or queen conceived without original sin. The medallion was found in 2013 in the remains of a merchant's house within Fort Michilimackinac in Michigan. So where did this medallion come from, and why did it end up in the ruins of a fortress in northern Michigan? Well, it was certainly produced in Europe, most likely, as I said, in France, for the use of the Jesuit order, which was very important in France in the 17th and 18th centuries. As I mentioned, the obverse side of the medallion shows Ignatius Loyola in profile, dressed in a priestly robe and hat and gazing upward at the sky. Ignatius Loyola, if you don't already know, I discussed him a little bit in my lecture on the Catholic Reformation. He was originally from the Kingdom of Navarre in what's now northern Spain, the Basque Kingdom, and he started out his early life as a Basque warrior, but he was severely injured in the Battle of Pamplona in 1521 when he was 25 years old, and his leg was shattered by a cannonball, and he was bedridden for weeks afterwards. He had to come to terms with the fact that he would never be able to fight or ride a horse again, and he went into a sort of stupor, prayed for a new mission in life, and when recovering, he decided to become a priest and fight a spiritual crusade for the church and the faith instead of being a literal warrior. And he enrolled in theology studies at the University of Paris. He gathered a circle of friends, like-minded friends around himself, who then took vows and formed their own new religious order, which they called the Society of Jesus, or what we now call the Jesuit Order and they then gained recognition from the Catholic Church. Now, at the same time that Loyola was launching the Society of Jesus, he also developed and wrote about his so-called spiritual exercises, a method of prayer and meditation that he believed could help to discern God's will and find one's mission. So if one looks at depictions of Loyola, like the one on this particular medallion, he's seen gazing upward at the sky, and in particular in this image he's seen beholding a heavenly body surrounded by a glory, or beams of light radiating out. 
And this is probably a reference to the fact that's recounted in biographies of Loyola, that he was fascinated with the sky and stars, and that he would often gaze at the sky as a sort of early preparation for his prayers. And so it could be seen to sort of symbolize his spiritual reflectiveness and his efforts to understand and learn God's will and signs and omens from God. Now, as for the Jesuit order that he launched, their initial hope and ambition was to launch a mission to the Holy Land. And some of them did go for a brief time to Jerusalem. But actually starting a Christian mission there was very politically problematic. The Holy Land was under the rule of the Ottomans, and they were very wary and carefully limited Christian activities in the province. So the Catholic Church instead dispatched the Jesuits to places where the Catholic religion was in some way embattled, particularly to battlegrounds or conflict zones between Catholicism and Protestantism, countries like Poland, Ireland, and Scotland. But they also soon became very powerful in France, where the French monarchy saw the Jesuits as a tool that they could use to pave the way for French colonization abroad. And France felt the need to sort of keep up with other countries, especially England, in foreign trade and colonization. So France could dispatch teams of Jesuit missionaries, most of whom were French themselves, to create missions, gain groups of converts, and thus lead the way to forming alliances, trade relationships, and eventually colonial settlement. And France, this was very important to France because they didn't have nearly as many people to send abroad as the British did. The British were in the midst of a massive enclosure movement. There were thousands of dispossessed peasants, so-called vagrants, who could be sent abroad almost as, as excess to slough off. France didn't have that in the way Britain did, so they had to strategically use small numbers of people to create advantageous diplomatic relations and political inroads among the indigenous peoples of other countries, especially, of course, North America. So the French Jesuits were very important and impactful in France's incursion into America. And this began with missions to Canada and the St. Lawrence Seaway in the early 1600s, and gradually the Jesuits explored and expanded further west into the Great Lakes area. The Jesuit order aligned themselves with a powerful nation called the Wendat, or also called Hurons, and they created an important mission near Lake Huron, basically northwest of what's now Toronto. But they were soon caught up in feuding and warfare between the Huron and the Iroquois Confederacy, which was very powerful. And over the course of the 1640s, eight French Jesuit missionaries among the Huron were captured, tortured, and killed. However, this did not discourage the Jesuits' missionizing and expansion. Rather, it spurred them on even more because these dead Jesuits came to be seen as martyrs. And in modern day, they've actually been canonized as Catholic saints. And for many Jesuits, martyrdom was the highest possible aspiration. So it actually encouraged even more Jesuit activity further into the interior of North America. And the missions expanded steadily westward. 
And an important leader in this Jesuit expansion was the young Jacques Marquette, who explored the upper Great Lakes, founded the French colony of Sault-Sainte-Marie in 1668 on the channel connecting Lake Huron with Lake Superior, and then just a few years later in 1671 founded the mission of Saint-Ignace on the straits connecting Lake Michigan to Lake Huron. And so Saint-Ignace was named after Saint Ignatius Loyola. It's just the French version of Ignatius. And it was on the northern shore of what we call the Straits of Mackinac. So on the side that we today consider the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. A small town was created around the mission of St. Ignace, and most of the early settlers of this town were actually Christian Huron Indians who had had to flee from the warfare and destruction by the Iroquois Confederacy. And this mission and small Christian village at St. Ignace was able to act as a base to open up trade and diplomacy with other nations to the west, such as the Ojibwe and the Potawatomi. And it became a key connection for France into the vast interior of the continent, the large, mostly flat areas around the upper Great Lakes and the upper Mississippi and Missouri valleys. And these connections and communications were carried on mainly by large canoes that were able to navigate the waterways and the shores of the Great Lakes. Also, Saint-Ignace was visited by a ship called Le Griffon, or the Griffin, which was built on Lake Erie and launched and sailed through Lake Erie, Lake Huron, and into Lake Michigan, and was the first ever sailing ship to sail on the Great Lakes above Niagara Falls. However, on its first voyage, it disappeared. And it's not known for certain exactly what became of it or where the remains might lie. But a team of explorers on Lake Michigan claims to have found the hull and the wreck of the griffin on the bottom of Lake Michigan just last year in 2021. But we can't say yet for certain if that is an authentic find. So Saint-Ignace was a very crucial early French foothold connecting to Lake Michigan and to the world of the Mississippi Basin and the interior of North America. But it didn't last forever. In 1702 and 03, most of the Christian Huron and other Indians from Saint-Ignace withdrew south to the French town at Detroit. Maybe they saw it as safer or a more hospitable climate, but for whatever reason, most of the population left the mission. And Saint-Ignace was finally completely abandoned in 1705, maybe because it was at that point insecure and vulnerable to hostile nations. And what was left of the remaining Christian village near the mission site burned down in 1708 the survivors removed to the south shore of the Straits of Mackinac and resettled there, maybe because that was a more defensible position. But regardless, in 1710, a new St. Ignace mission was refounded at the site of that Indian village on the south shore of the Straits. And two years later, in 1712, the French government set up a military camp near the mission for the purpose of defending the mission and carrying out expeditions against an enemy nation, the Fox, in what's now Wisconsin. 
And three years after that, in 1715, the French built a palisaded wood fortress with small towers and gates that enclosed the entire complex, the mission and the military encampment. And they called this fort Michely Mackinac. And this is a name of Ojibwe origin, but its original meaning is uncertain. It might mean possibly Great Turtle, but it apparently was used to refer to the entire area of the Straits of Mackinac, and the French applied it to this new fortress completed in 1715. In the 1720s through until the 1750s, for more than 30 years, this fort was a major hub of travel and trade and diplomacy, and it controlled communication all around the upper Great Lakes because it was the most significant stronghold on that crucial link between Lake Michigan and the other lakes. Now, this whole area around the upper Great Lakes and even extending west towards the Mississippi, the French called this whole area the Pays d'en haut, or high country because it was higher ground from the vantage point of Quebec and Montreal, and a very distinctive kind of society based on long-distance communication and diplomacy developed in the Pays d'en haut. And the historian Richard White published a book in 1991 called The Middle Ground, where he famously argued that this whole region can be seen as a sort of middle ground where neither side, neither Europeans nor indigenous Americans, nor any particular tribe or nation really had enough of an upper hand in terms of number or fighting power in order to dominate the region. And hence, society depended on complicated networks based on negotiation. And he argues that there was comparatively little violence or ethnic cleansing as these different societies had to coexist and accommodate one another. Now, this book was highly influential and it sort of set a framework for how many other people described and analyzed all sorts of regions around the Americas. You know, the middle grounds started popping up everywhere in the 1990s. But the argument has also been intensely contested, and many other scholars, such as, for instance, Ned Blackhawk, have looked at the frequency of violence and the increasing pressure that European expansion placed upon Native American societies, demographically, politically. So one has to take this argument with a grain of salt and not idealize the pays d'en or the so-called middle ground. But regardless of that, it's certainly true that Fort Michely Mackinac was a crucial complex a very compact but powerful base for European expansion into the American interior. And it included three important elements, the Jesuit mission, which spread the faith and ministered to converts to Christianity, the military garrison, which often took part in important wars, including wars that were primarily between Indian nations, and a corps of permanent resident French merchants, who were mainly invested in the fur trade. That was the main high-value commodity that Europeans could acquire from this region, was furs, especially beaver furs. And these French fur traders tended to live in small row houses, where dwellings would be built tight together in compact rows within the fort. So space inside the walls was 
at a high premium, and also heating through the long winters was very difficult, so the dwellings tended to be built right back to back. And among these fur traders who lived in the fort in the 1730s, 40s, and 50s was one named Charles-Henri Desjardins du Roupalais de Gonneville, who you can probably guess from the length of his name and maybe also from the occurrence of the nominative de, was a man of high status, descended from aristocratic French families, and he probably was part of this very common class of men in New France who might come from high-class families but were younger sons or nephews, and hence, rather than inheriting a large estate in France, they made their fortune in the New World. So Gonneville was a French-Canadian Catholic merchant who we know lived at the fort at least between 1727 and 1754, so for at least 27 years. And for a period of time in the 1740s and 50s, he owned the southeast row house in the fort, which was a long structure of several dwellings built out of cedar and pine. And this medallion was found in the foundations of so-called House E within this row house block. And Gonneville himself lived in House E with his wife named Marie Charlotte. And next door to them was Marie Charlotte's sister and her husband named René Bourassa, who was a business partner of Gonneville and who often joined together with him in fur trading and other ventures. And it seems that this extended family in this row house lived and prospered for a period of years, but this was disrupted in the 1750s by the outbreak of the Seven Years' War, a massive struggle against the British. And fighters from Michelimackinac, including both the French garrison and allied Indian fighters, took part in this war, and Michelimackinac warriors went east and helped to defeat the British General Braddock in 1755 in the early days of the war. But as you may know, the tide eventually turned, and the French lost Montreal in 1760, the last large French stronghold on the St. Lawrence Seaway. And Michelimackinac fighters were present at that battle as well, at the fall of Montreal, and this sent out the sort of massive alarm that the French garrisons were now in danger and likely to face an unstoppable British onslaught. So not surprisingly, shortly after the fall of Montreal, the row houses in the fort were abandoned. And soon after, around the end of the war in 1762 or 63, the fort was then taken over by the British. And British merchants actually moved into these houses, including House E that had belonged to Gonneville. And an unknown British merchant lived there, accumulated more possessions, inhabited this house until 1781, when the British then also vacated the fort as they ceded the territory of what's now Michigan to the United States. And it seems that the British garrison withdrew off of the mainland to Mackinac Island, an island further east in the Straits of Mackinac that the British could still plausibly claim as part of Canada. So the whole fortress of Michelimackinac was left abandoned and was covered over with sand and drifting dirt from the high winds for over 130 years. In 1909, the state of Michigan made the area around the fort into a state park, 
and later opened a historic museum about the site. But it started to be excavated archaeologically in 1959. And excavation work on the foundations of the fort was very slow because it's really only feasible during the short summer months. Most of the year it is too cold and windy and continual work has been done on the residential houses, including this southeast row house, every single summer since 1959, making it probably the longest running continual archaeological project in America. And the results of this excavation have been fairly rich. Many artifacts were found first from the British occupation period, things like a lot of porcelain dishes from Europe and from China. And then in more recent years, they've also begun to uncover more of the deeper layer from the French period. And the discoveries in House E in particular show that Gonneville was very wealthy and lived a pretty opulent lifestyle for a remote fortress on what Europeans considered the remote frontier. And he showed a lot of his wealth and his Catholic piety through opulent religious objects. For instance, in 2015, archaeologists found a rosary with 72 ivory beads linked together with silver chain links. So this is a remarkable, rich, and impressive object in terms of rosaries to be found anywhere in the world, let alone in this remote fortress on the Straits of Mackinac. The medallion that we've been talking about was found in 2013, and it also is fairly impressive. When one looks at the image today, of course, it's very corroded, as will happen to brass, unlike, say, gold. And so it may not be so striking to the eye, but at the time when it was used, it probably did shine like gold and would have been very eye-catching. And it raises the question of why Gonneville had it, considering its particular features. The medallion shape and the design with Ignatius Loyola clearly associates the medallion with the Jesuits. And it was fairly common for the Jesuits to commission small, impressive religious objects, particularly rings, but sometimes also medallions and pendants, to bring to their mission sites in America and other places around the world, and then use them as sort of trade and diplomatic objects. The common custom among Native American nations was polite diplomatic gift exchange, and this was crucial in maintaining relations among different tribes and nations. And the French Jesuits knew this. They, of course, had immersed themselves in and studied Native American lifeways. And so they often brought these particular objects that could be valuable, symbolic, that could convey the importance of France and of the Catholic religion, and then use them as diplomatic gift items. So it's more normal to find Jesuit artifacts like this, say, at a Native American encampment among people who were in some way aligned with the French. But this one was found in Gonneville's house. So why did he have this object that seems more like a diplomatic trade item? Maybe he had bought it from the Jesuits as a way of displaying his wealth and his piety, as a way of showing that he was a patron who supported the Jesuits' mission. Maybe he wore it on his person to signal these aspects of his identity. Now, as I said, the designs are worn down but still fairly visible. 
while the lettering around the edges is even more worn and most of it today is no longer readable. Now that could just be from corrosion, from moisture and from minerals in the earth that have corroded it through the years. But it's also possible that some of that wear was from handling, from being worn and touched for a number of years before it was lost. And that raises the possibility that maybe the, this medallion was used as part of a practice of prayer and meditation, the sort of spiritual exercises that Jesuits tended to teach and encourage among their followers and their patrons. So all in all, it seems like this medallion was very valued and had great symbolic importance. And that raises the question then of why was it left to be buried in the foundations of this house. Maybe it was accidentally dropped. It's the sort of small, thin, flat object that might be dropped and fall between a floorboard or between beams. Maybe it was accidentally left behind during a quick exit as the residents of the fortress fled in 1760. Maybe it was not dropped or discarded. Maybe it was left hanging or displayed somewhere, but then was discarded as trash by the later occupants of the house, which would have been a British merchant and maybe his family, who would have been Protestants and who would have rejected and even abhorred these Catholic religious items as signs of idolatry. And so perhaps it's not surprising that many of these objects that have been found in the dirt around this house are Catholic religious items. But whatever the exact course of events, whether it was accidentally dropped or it was intentionally discarded by the occupants who took over the house from Gonneville, either way, the medallion itself and the place it's been found show the great political importance of objects and images in these networks that were built up by Catholic missionism at the height of French power and the way that those relationships centering particularly on the Jesuit order were linchpins in power politics all around North America. So thank you for listening and thank you particularly to the Mackinac State Historic Parks in Michigan and Dr. Lynn Evans.